Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and folks, on today's show, we are honored to have with us Mark P. Mills. How's it going, Ron? Going great, Ed. Everybody in our audience knows that you and I are think tank junkies, and I've been a long-term fan of uh, Mark Mills, so this is wonderful to be able to talk to him. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic to talk about this book, but let's read them in so we can get to the meat of the conversation. Mark P. Mills is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a faculty fellow at Northwestern University's McCormick School of Engineering and Applied Science. He is also a strategic partner with Montrose Lane or Montrose Lane, an energy tech venture fund. Previously, he co-founded Digital Power Capital, a boutique venture fund, and was chairman and CTO of ICX Technologies, helping take it public in 2007. He is the author of the book, The Cloud Revolution, How the Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the Next Economic Boom and the Roaring 2020s. That will be the subject of our conversation today. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Mark Mills. Great, great to be here. And I love the uh, the bumper intro with my favorite president. Of course, I'm, I'm biased having worked in that White House science office as a child. Uh, and that, that line of his, of course, epitomizes not only the zeitgeist of my entire life of research and writing, but in fact, my book. And my book's really about that incredibly clear statement about the no, the, the no limits to growth statement, as opposed to the odious, terrible, enervating limits to growth for the Club of Rome of the uh, days of yore that still infects the intellectual political world. But anyway, I get ahead of myself. Thanks, Neo, thanks for having the, me. Yes, the Neo-Malthusians. <laughs> yeah, they've never given up. They, it's like they should be called zombie Malthusians. <laughs> oh. Never, ever freaking die. <laughs> Still Martin, here. You probably knew Warren Brooks, who wrote the book, The Economy in Mind, and that's where he borrowed that, that term in that speech. That's a great, that's a great term. Uh, I knew Julian Simon, who was a neighbor and friend. We oh, lived, wow. he lived across the street from me when I first uh, when I first got married. Uh, we started having kids, and he was there. And we talked about ideas. We talked about more than just ideas, but and of course he he was uh, accused of being, uh, and they thought this was an invective, a cornucopian. I love that. I'll, so I'll embrace. I, I even embrace cornucopian. I like yeah, that. I, think yeah. I'm, I'm, I want to start a cornucopian club. <laughs> well, <Carter> members, <laughs> Mark, let, let, let's let's get into the book because there's some great material there. I really want to talk to you. And and similar to how you do in the book, um, give us a little appetizer by talking about the 1920s and how that is an impact on the 2020s. Yeah, the 1920s are really interesting for a whole lot of reasons because it's a good you know the old adage that history doesn't repeat it rhymes and 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 by that you know people mean the obvious that patterns tell you something they don't they don't give you clarity on the timing of a, of an event but they tell you a lot about behaviors 
of markets and technologies and societies certainly matters in war fighting. That's why that's why if you go to the war college, you still study the Peloponnesian Wars because patterns of behavior matter. They really do. They tell you a lot about the future. 1920s were an incredible confluence of technology efflorescence. And most historians write about uh, what happened at that time through the lens of a, a person or an event or a technology, the car, the airplane, Lindbergh, right? Uh, we, can, we can go down the list or the, the great, the great uh, horrific pandemic of 1918 or, you know, you, you pick a thing. What I was intrigued by was the confluence of events, both technological and sociological, political at the time, because it looked like our era more than any other period, arguably in hundreds of years. There was incredible political foment and foment then. It was that was only a couple of years after the Bolshevik Revolution. People worried about the Red Scare. There were riots in the country. Race riots were horrific in America in 1920. People were killing each other, literally. Hundreds of cops killed people, citizens. That you know, we had we had martial law imposed on Charleston, South Carolina, because of a race riot. We had uh, we had debates over our sexual identity, if you like, in a sense that that was the time of the women's suffrage movement, which in hindsight, everybody said, well, it's obvious women should have the right to vote. Of course, of course, in, in the, you know, the perfect uh, vision of hindsight, women should have the right to vote. It was really controversial at the time, fiercely debated, very emotional. Uh, even go to, we can go through a whole list of of issues that are seem familiar to us today that we think are new to us. People were very worried about income inequality, the disparities between the very rich and the poor. There were more people really rich in relative terms then than there are today. They're only t- only recently, and in fact, with the stock market re- readjusting, they still haven't. The, today's tech billionaires have still not ascended to the wealth of the robber barons, so-called robber barons of the 20s, the Gold Coast, the mansions. Uh, if, if you go through all the social turmoil, you know, the Red Scare had uh, uh, governments doing things that were just flat illegal. The New York State Legislature threw out duly elected legislators because they were the members of the a Socialist Party, just threw them out. Well, they were elected. I mean, it was prima facie illegal. They couldn't, but they did it anyway. And you sort of tick off the list of those things. It, it was really a disruptive time. And people were recovering from a really horrific pandemic. It was... it. In, in, in uh, per capita terms, adjusted for the size of the population, it's about almost 400% more lethal than the evil COVIDs. And what was much more shocking is it killed the young. COVIDs preferentially killed the old. The uh, 1918 flu, which had three waves well into 1921, killed, killed the young. Uh, it was just a horrifically wrenching uh, pandemic. So at the same time, though, we had the inv- we had. The, the, the incredible expansion of all kinds of technologies that were in independent domains, but all fed on each other, if you like. The confluence of revolutions in material science. We had high-strength steel. We had polymers and pharmaceuticals emerge. They'd been invented 20 years earlier, but they only really became affordable and practical then. The automobile became affordable and practical. That was the inflection point of the takeoff of the car in the 1920s. Cars have been around for 30 years at that point. There have been 400 automobile companies in the United States alone building and selling cars, but most people didn't have a car. Most, you know, they were the wealthy, the experimenters, the tinkerers. Uh, airplane started to become a real product in the 1920s, even though it had been around and used in World War I. 
it achieved utility value, which is really the sort of key point in my my book is when technologies achieve a utility value, cheap enough, good enough, reliable enough to get widespread use. That was the era of the of electrification moving and electric motors into the economy, the era of the expansion of telephony. And it was also the era of the expansion of science. The modern science era that we take for granted was essentially a, a, a you know, cooked up, if you like to use a non-technical term, in the late 19th century. That was the emergence of modern science, the way we think about it. But it really took hold post-World War I in the 1920s. The whole idea of research institutions, of research funding from government, of research labs run by by corporations, the, the very idea of research and development, which just didn't exist as a nomenclature, never mind a practice, was was blossoming in the 20s. So all this went around simultaneously, not not because anybody planned it. No government planned that. Government had a role in some of it, you know, facilitating capital flows and intellectual property laws. Those things all matter. But that wasn't what drove it. And the combination of those things is what caused the greatest expansion of wealth in human history. For the next 80 years, wealth expanded in real terms by 700% per capita. What an astonishing increase in, in domestic wealth per capita and global wealth, frankly. Sure, you know, when I say those things, what you get, it, it, everybody, <laughs> I know it's in their heads when they hear me saying, all oh, these great things happened from 1920 to the year 2000. Well, we had a couple of pretty horrific wars, if you didn't notice. We had a Great Depression, Mills, if you didn't notice. I mean, okay, yes. I mean, so I stipulate in my book, but I don't deal with it as a subject matter, Humans have the capacity and will always have the capacity to fight wars. There's been no period in human history, and I think I got this right, that there's been 20 years without a major war for recorded history somewhere, uh, maybe 30 years. But there's, there's no long interregnum where we don't have wars going on somewhere. We do have depressions and recessions. We, we have the capacity to hate each other and do stupid stuff. I mean, it's, we're human after all. So those things haven't changed. But what has changed is this incredible expansion of wealth and well-being. What did that? Was it because we suddenly became better humans? I think you could argue that our social and cultural environments are many ways better than they were a century ago, because we're now judging people in the past by our standards of today, which we think are better. God, God forbid the people of the future judge us by their standards. But anyway, whole separate discussion. So- I'm very keenly aware that when I take the 1920s as my pivot and say, I think we're at a period just like the 1920s now for the first time in a century, that doesn't mean we don't have problems. We have problems that are that are not only similar to and every bit as severe as the world faced in the 1920s. We've got about uh, three minutes before our break. I want you to set this up too from the book. How is the cloud different from the internet? Well, so I say the cloud is as different from the internet as the internet is different from telephone networks. And the internet, when it first came along, for those of us a certain age, remember the dial-up modem and the whole internet used the telephone network. Uh, but the internet wasn't just for communicating. It was for doing the things that people learned early on. It replaced the mail, form of communication. It wasn't telephony. And it allowed things like web pages and shopping online and finding things, which was really quite revolutionary. Everybody was very excited about it. We all remember all the uh, you know slobbering over how amazing the internet was, and, and it was. 
But the cloud uses the internet the way the internet used the telephone network. The cloud requires the internet. It requires computation. It requires wireless communications. It requires sensors and smart devices like your smartphone. But it does something different. It's an information and inference function. It's not a computational function. It's not a communication function. It uses those things to do something really, really quite different. And it does all those things as well. But the key difference, put very simplistically, is how we use uh, mapping. Mapping is not computation. It's not an exact answer. It's advice. I want to go from A to B. And the, the system knows about traffic in real time. It may even know my preferences, knows something about weather, construction activities, knows, can know increasingly more and more things and give me advice and options on a path I might take into the future. If you imagine that functionality made even more useful and even more activities, obviously from medicine, but also the manufacturing and just into planning for hotels, as you continue to expand that kind of advice and inference functionality, which is what the cloud is clearly doing now, we're in the very early days of that, but it's such a profoundly different infrastructure from anything we've ever built. That That's why I use that as a title, and that's why it's the thread through the book. All right. Well, this is great. Thanks for the setup, but we're already up against our first break. want to remind our listeners that they can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. We are sponsored by Patreon, where we have a Patreon channel, and that Patreon channel is sponsored by Blake Oliver at Earmark CPE. Give him a check out at earmarkcpe.com. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Mark B. Mills. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and he's also the host of the podcast, The Last Optimist. 
Uh, Mark, I like uh, Matt Ridley's phrase, I'm a paranoid optimist, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) you write early on in the book that belief is the wellspring of dynamism and innovation. Couldn't agree more. Our first guest on the show eight years ago was Deirdre McClowski. Yeah. Sure, you're familiar (laughs) with her trilogy. I know, but but I've never met her. My, My son, who's a philosopher, and a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute has spent a lot of time, a lot of time with her. Uh, it likes it likes her a lot. It's intellectual, intellectual cousin, so to speak. It's really a, a very impressive mind. What an incredible person! And, yeah, she went really deep on this topic. What caused the great enrichment? But like you say, it's not just belief; it's also technology. Um, and you said if you believe innovation has slowed and there's only going to be a handful of winners, then the case for managed growth emerges. So both innovators and politicians matter. Innovators are obviously the creators, but the politicians are either enablers or impediments. And I guess I just wanted your take. Do you see too much impediment going on and not enough creation? (laughs) I think the question, as they say, answers itself. (laughs) (laughs) Ask it um, is to answer it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> our current our current cycle, and and they are cycles in governance. And I'm a, I'm an immigrant. I came out of the parliamentary system of Her Majesty. Grew up under Her Majesty, not His Majesty, mm-hmm. in Canada. And I like the American system of governance better than the parliamentary system. I mean, they're both you know they both have their pluses and minuses. But but I my general impression about the United States, uh, of course, I've been here many decades now is that Americans, broadly speaking, and I don't think this has changed. I mean, there's always some cultural changes, are very tolerant, generally speaking, of cultural and political experimentation. They try different things on for size for a while. And then if it doesn't work out so well, they swing back, the old pendulum swinging thing. I think it's very much true in the United States. I think it's, I think it's harder to move the pendulum in Europe and in Canada. I think the American pendulum swings a little more easily. I think it's a cultural root, which is sort of what Edmund Phelps was getting to in his book, you know, Mass Flourishing. I'm sure Deirdre McClowski would probably agree with a lot of what Phelps wrote about this. The underlying culture of America is what led to its economic flourishing, not just technology or its laws, but the nature of its people. I think that's true. And, but I think we are in a, in a period right now of a lot of impediments. And some of them, I think some of them, emerged because it was from well, well-meaning purposes. Let's say this talk about regulatory impediments that make it harder to build things, factories that we care about. Even if it's factories or things that are on the preferred list of products, like you know, batteries that everybody's <laughs> so excited about. It's really, really it doesn't you don't have to build an oil refinery. You build anything of that scale and you got a problem in our our culture. This is also true for innovators now. We're making capital formation difficult because of the inevitable hiccups, if you like, which are very serious in capital markets. You know, the Silicon Valley Bank uh, bank run and collapse and rescue are, are will have will have consequences, which you know I I think probably will slow capital formation and risk capital. Even though we took the risk out of that one bank, it's going to make it's going to make capital markets skittish for a while. So those are impediments. I think they go away uh, because I think people, I think Americans in particular are, are hunger for in, innovation. Each, each, but everybody has their own kind of cafeteria menu of what they think we should innovate, you know, cure for cancer or the cure for the climate. But I, I don't, 
I have opinions about what's more useful to cure, <laughs> but that doesn't really matter because the underlying motivation is you lo- you want this. Everybody sort of agrees the innovation engine matters. That's maybe one thing that's a true bipartisan agreement. So as we as we begin to realize that we've thrown sand in the gears of the works in America, and I think that's becoming clear. I, I think we're going to prove it. But this, the, the essence, the reason I began my book that way, and the reason Joel Moikir, another great economic historian, began his most recent book with that, and I quote him more than any other economist in my book, because he's, uh, I, I think he's a Nobel class economist. He's, he's a brilliant guy, really is, great thinker. The, what people believe matters, and it's not believe in a silly sense. So when he writes what he says, or what you believe, in fact, he wrote, and I quote him, uh, I think I get the quote right, which is, the economists are reluctant to admit the extent to which what people believe influences economic growth. Hmm. So, which is a form of what you, you, you know, I wrote, it's a form of what Deirdre McClowski has said, belief matters because everything about the future is a guess. Everything about the future is about faith, what you do will have an outcome that you hope it will have. This is an act of faith. So you're thinking you're thinking about capital risks, time risks, right? All the kind of risks that go into taking an action. And if you're not if you don't have believe that where you're going, that there's something good to go towards, more wealth, more comforts, better things for your children or a cleaner environment, whatever it is, whatever you're you, you're not, I just think you're not. People aren't motivated. They create. They the, the whole idea we create the future is certainly true, within the boundaries of what's the laws of physics allow when engineers know how to build, so to speak. So I'm trying in my book to merge those two things. First, from the perspective that it feels to me like when I travel and talk to people, there's this general sense, and you see it in a lot of the technical literature, in the economic literature, that we really have sort of tapped out really profound innovation. The, the, the really big things have already been invented. You can't invent the car again. It's invented already. You can't invent the plane again. You can't invent antibiotics again. So all the consequential inventions, which is what Gordon is saying, the other economists mm-hmm. at Northwestern, have happened. So now what we got is incremental improvements. Better cars, but it's not the car. Better, you know, safer pharmaceuticals, but it's not the, you know, it's not the invention of pharmaceuticals itself. Uh, you know, his favorite example is once you invent the toilet, it changed more than the, in terms of human well-being. They meant by that modern plumbing, of course, then to the smartphone. And it's, you know, it's a cute line and it, there's a lot of truth to that. But I don't think that I don't think foundational innovation has ended. And I really I tried in my book to make the point that there are some foundational things that are already feasible that are at very early stages of deployment. Just like the 1920s, in that, but we can, we don't have to guess the future if the future has already been invented in our very recent past and is becoming practical. So now you're not making a forecast that's silly. You know, one example I use a lot in my book is about anthropomorphic robots, robots that are useful in our personal daily environment. Those are no, it's no longer science fiction to imagine you can build such a thing. The only debate now is how soon are they cheap enough and useful enough to have utility and where were they where where will they have utility that's actually harder to predict than the prediction that they will have we will have them and that would have been true in 1920 you could easily have predicted airplanes were going to get better safer cheaper people would fly very few people were able to predict one outcome is that the primary use for airplanes 
to give an example, which is a big thesis of my book, a whole section on entertainment. Airplanes are primarily for entertainment. And by that, I mean 85% of all passengers on global air travel fly for non-business purposes, which is a euphemism for (laughs) fun or entertainment, (laughs) tourism, doing visiting, seeing family and friends. So 15% of air travel is for a specific economic purpose, the utility function of me visiting somebody to to have a transaction happen. Okay, it's a big deal. Uh, It's really important. Everybody knew that, but nobody would have predicted the quantity of airplanes that we we built and the magnitude of that whole industry to service a function that wasn't what people predicted at the time. There were were some people who flew for entertainment. You know, the, the wealthy... Famously, in the Pan Am Clipper before World War II, uh, would would fly to Europe. It's a very very was much faster than a ship. Still pretty onerous, and I think in today's dollars, a ticket was something like thirty thousand dollars. So a pretty expensive way to entertain yourself. You know, you talk about the revol- re- that revolutions happen at the intersection of three spheres: the machines, the materials, and the information. And then you give these great examples. That's one of the thing I really loved about the book is just all the history in there about the rule of threes in the technological space. You know, the iPhone, the camera, the telegraph. It's just usually these three things that come together that enable these technologies to emerge. And this reminds me of the book Superabundance. Yeah, I know the book. I have it. Yeah. It, it, yeah. I, it, great it, book. It, this, is, this is endless, isn't it, Mark? Yeah, well, that's sort of... The obvious point that's been made by people like Julian Simon and Joel Moikier and Deirdre and Loklowski is that the idea that there's 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 an end to the combination of things. The, the universe is, has a fixed number of atoms in it. We, 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 as far as we know, we figured out what they all are. Right. And a fixed number of forces. And again, so far as we know, we haven't found any new ones. Yet we keep doing new things that are previously impossible by different combinations of of, of a suite of atoms and forces, because that's it. The whole universe is comprised of just that. Well, actually, rephrase it. Back to my rule of threes. The universe is comprised of exactly three things, atoms, forces, and ideas. And the thing that's unlimited are the ideas, a combination of the forces and the atoms. So we, we, we make things from polymers to airplanes, to cars, to smartphones. The, you know, as I thought about my rule of th- threes metric, and, and it's, a, it's a little bit forced in this sense, Sometimes it's four things that had to happen. A couple of times it's just two things, but it's never just one thing. The one product or service that becomes iconic and magical emerged because contemporaneously, independent of that inventor, three different things matured to the level of being really useful as a component. So for the smartphone, most people know if I say it, but they don't really think about it. Your smartphone is a radio. Radios were really big for a long time. I mean, really big. The radios in World War One were, were weighed one ton. <laughs> and radios in you know, the 1920s were a piece of furniture. But the invention of a radio chip, a, a silicon radio chip, the RF chip, was revolutionary. We put a radio on a chip, literally the size of your small finger fingernail. So a radio on a chip was not invented by Apple, which started the smartphone revolution. The invention, of course, of the lithium battery uh, was not had nothing to do with Apple, uh, and that came from Exxon in the mid-70s. But once it matured, it gave you the ability to have power in small size, as we all now know, came from a different, whole different uh, sphere 
magisteria of light of, of chemistry and science and development. And the other is not the computer chip itself, because that was important, but that was l- less important. That had been around for a long time. When the smartphone came around, there'd been desktop computers for a long time. Why wasn't there a smartphone? Because the third in the triad and the rule of threes was the screen, the tiny LCD screen, which was also invented completely independent of, and because of a materials revolution uh, going on combined with other revolutions, you got the screen that you could make small instead of, you couldn't make a smartphone, it is beyond obvious, with a 1960s television cathode ray tube screen that would you know, be bigger, as big as your briefcase, uh, if you're lucky. So that combination is, you know, the imagination of Steve Jobs, if you like, in his team to look at it and say, I have a, I can put those three things together in a way that has a unique utility on a product that never existed. Well, it's true for airplanes. You can map the history of cars that way, the history of telephone itself. It's, it's a, the rule always holds, well, I should say, always is a pretty uh, bold, uh, as far as I can tell, I'm looking for an exception to the rule. So if someone's listening, they find it, they should text or email me. Show me an exception to the rule that a combination of advances in materials, technology, knowledge coalesce to make possible the, the, each of the pivots and we'll call it product or service history of humanity. And this goes right back to Roman times. It was, these are not, this is not a new idea, but the difference today is that our knowledge set, the thing that is unlimited, is our ability to acquire knowledge and dive deeper into the workings of nature, figure out how it works, and use that information synergistically with tools that we create from the knowledge to dive deeper into the sort of the bottom as well, if you like, of of the interstices of how nature works, and then use that to assemble and make things that didn't exist. Now, when you, once you say all that, people then want to say, well, what's the what's the new magic? And that's when you get into the other problem I write about in my book, which is, well, then you have to deal with inertia. That you know, The inertia of building real things at scale is different than just imagining them and having them. That's why the 1920s mattered. They went from the ideas of the previous 30 years to the manufacturing uh, and infrastructure tipping points where they could then have go from being slow adopting to appearing to overnight take over the world. Well, the overnight success usually takes three decades. Right. I yeah, I was trying to think of an exception to your rule of three. And I mean, even Sears Roebuck, you proved uh, required, you know, railroads and other things. So it's, it's a fantastic framework. Unfortunately, Mark, we're up against our next break. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And do check out our Patreon channel that uh, Ed mentioned. That channel is now sponsored by 90 Minds. More minds meld at 90 Minds. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. 
Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. The book is The Cloud Revolution, How the Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the Next Economic Boom and a Roaring 2020s. And the author, Mark P. Mills, is with us today on The Soul of Enterprise. And Mark, I wanted to ask you about something that you talked about, um, uh, the, the current forecasts for some of the 100,000 megawatts of edge hardware. This is only edge hardware that's going to be added in the 2020s. That's roughly the equivalent to powering all of the HVA systems in America's commercial office buildings today, <laughs> what's your? Is, do you have a concern about? Can we? Are we going to be able to generate this much power? Well, there's the can. The can and will are different words. Mm-hmm. Can we? Sure, easily. Will we? Well, eventually, sure. Um, current plans that are being imposed on the utility industry will would cause me to doubt that we can power either an expanding cloud or the, you know, the favored technology to jour, the electric vehicle revolution, whether we can power enough vehicles with batteries with the current plans for the grid. So in a but in a previous time, if you had said, can the electric utility sector produce enough electricity to fuel the torrid growth of the American economy? I mean, it, it it was a question, again, that would answer itself. Of course you can, uh, because the growth rates are relatively predictable in the, in the timeframes of the construction of the power plants. The problem is we are right now predictably constraining the growth rates of power supply, <laughs> and, which will constrain demand. I mean, it's not complicated. So I'm... Uh, I remain optimistic as the last optimist that uh, that will not stand because the uh, markets and people do not like those kind of constraints. They're not, they don't feel good. And when they become obvious and they haven't become obvious quite yet, they've become obvious in Europe. They've had a different exogenous event, but when you make grids fragile, which is what Europe essentially did, they built a fragile grid um, by virtue of dependence, over-dependence on a bad actor and overdependence on their side of wind and solar. So it made the grid fragile. The combination was what made it fragile. If neither of those things had happened, it wouldn't have been a fragile grid. So in the United States, we have the opposite. We have an anti-fragile grid. We're not overly dependent on any single source of energy. We're highly internally dependent on fuels and we're not overly dependent on wind and solar yet. So the combination of that means that we have an extraordinarily resilient and robust grid at the moment, both in terms of cybersecurity frankly, but also in terms of physical 
physical reliability and security. So long answer to, can we do it? Yes, of course we can. And and we should, and we better because the, <laughs> the benefits, uh, you know, the market is not chasing edge computing because, because uh, computer makers are selling selling more computer chips. It's the inverse. The demand for those chips is being driven by what you what businesses are doing with the computation uh, at the edges. We should define what you mean by edge, by the way, it seems to me. A computer in a, in a central office in a big building, a data center, and big data centers are have a million square feet. That's like a shopping mall. So it's like a shopping mall size building with no humans in it, just hot silicon. It's a pretty amazing building. There are thousands of them in the world. We're building them by the hundreds, the hundreds, just the torrid building pace. And that's that utility function, the economic utility of concentrating, it's very high. They connect with networks on the edge. But if you're doing it, doing something that can't stand latency, which means the time it takes for the information to go to the data center and come back, you may think it's fast because it's speed of light, but it turns out speed of light is actually limited. And we know that it takes many milliseconds to go from the edge where my car is being controlled autonomously, or an automatic robot in a factory is being controlled autonomously, quality and safety. And if the if the information advice, if you like, going to the edge is coming from something far away, and it takes 25 milliseconds, 25 thousandths of a second, which is how long it takes to go round trip to, I think, roughly 600 miles. It's that, that range. Um, I should have had my math, but yeah. <laughs> People will doubtless do the arithmetic here and get it right, but it's that range. Uh, but if the action requires the decision in two milliseconds, and that would determine safety, you got a problem. So you put the, the the solution is you put the data center, the computer, on the edge near where the action is. This is also true what you do for security reasons. You also do this in financial transactions. Financial transactions happen at the if you're in a if you're in a data center processing credit card transactions, they do ten to twenty thousand transactions per second, they have to back it up in real time for security. So the distance you can do that in real time, in a you know, millisecond or so, it's about 20 miles. So you, you can't put your systems any more than 10 to 20 miles apart. Uh, those are the edges. Now, if you're storing the data, you want to find the cheapest place to store it. Then you want to go to the big Kahuna data center a long way away. And you do, you'll share that in quote real time and upload it. It doesn't matter if the data center's in Ireland the Arctic, you know, Iowa makes no difference. Cat videos are just fine there. And uh, there's a lot of those apparently on the internet, the last I checked. Well, uh, I wanted to also ask specifically about nuclear power. And I, I just heard um, one of your Manhattan Institute colleague, colleagues, uh, J- James uh, Meggs on Jonah Goldberg's podcast about this. And you write about this in the book, too, that you, you think that some of the, the small nuclear reactors are, are, yeah. are really about, about to become something that's really big and perhaps replace some of the, the, the or and enhance the power needs that we have. Yeah. Yeah, I have a, you know... It's it's not I don't have this in my bio in my book or I don't think it's even online. So I have a particular affection for nuclear energy. It might seem an odd thing to say you have an affection for, but the last job I had in Canada before I came to the United States was in the nuclear industry, and my first job in the United States was essentially as an internal science advisor to the commercial nuclear industry. And I arrived here in, in my twenties uh, on the eve of the accident at Three Mile Island, and so I spent the week of the accident at the accident at Three Mile Island. And then I spent the next six or seven years of my life defending the virtues of nuclear energy, obviously unsuccessfully, since we, uh, for the last several decades, have abandoned 
the pursuit of that technology in America. So I failed in my mission. Uh, so I agree with Jim. I know Jim is a, a good guy. He, he and I are you know, brothers by another mother, as they say. Um, so it, it's quite clear if you really uh, care about reducing our footprint on the planet in terms of land use and material use, there is nothing, and this is full stop, there's nothing as powerful and effective as using nuclear fission to reduce humans' footprint and provide energy by footprint and every, by whatever measure we want to use. Uh, it is the only phenomenology uh, that's new in the last century. Uh, it postdates the discovery of photoelectric effect. Einstein got the Nobel Prize in 1905 for the photoelectric effect. We didn't have nuclear fission uh, understood and, and, and proven uh, for more than 25 years after the, 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 the science of the photoelectric effect. And the first useful photovoltaic cells from Bell Labs emerged before the first really useful commercial nuclear reactors emerged. So nukes are new, which explains in part why we're having such a hard time making them um, useful at scale. It's a very hard technology to make inexpensive and safe at scale. Not impossible. We've done a pretty good job with the big reactors. So I'm very bullish on more big reactors because big things actually matter in big economies, big hydrodams, big power plants. But I use the analogy, I think, in my book of, of looking at aviation and thinking in terms of jumbo jets. Uh, the really biggest airplanes comprise about 10% of the world's aviation fleet. Something like 70% of all aircraft are small and mid-sized aircraft, 737s and smaller. There's a reason for that, right? The economies of scale end at some point in terms of just networked utility function. Because we, we, we live in a world of atoms, not data. Moving, moving stuff around, big stuff is just harder to move than little stuff. So I'm very bullish on small reactors. I was pleased and surprised to find, and I didn't know this until very recently. If I'd known it when I wrote the book, I would have put the damn fact in there. But there, <laughs> there are something like 50 Five zero designs for new small classes of reactors from kilowatt scale, which is literally small enough to run a house, to the big, the big, the big so-called small reactors, which are a third or quarter the size of the, the the big behemoths. So they're the the current crop of small reactors are sort of the equivalent to seven thirty sevens, and the the big kahunas are like a three eighties, right? So the new ones we hope to build that will. Power of the world will be the 737 class or the Bo A A320 you know, Boeings. But it's it's equally as exciting in nuclear power to think about sort of Cessna class, if you like, reactors. And there, there's a huge markets for that size of, of, of nuclear reactor and lots of really good designs. I would say, I'll bet you all the designs work from an engineering perspective. So there will be dozens and dozens of new kinds of nuclear power plants that will technically work as designed. If, if I were picking just based on history, uh, you know, the way engineering complex things end up as a commercially viable product, having utility function, probably 10 or 20% of those will actually have economic utility. But that means we're going to go from 50 to maybe a dozen new kinds of designs and companies making all sizes of nuclear reactors for the world. That's a, that's really quite, be quite a revolution in, in that sector. But it, just because engineering is hard, it takes time. You have to build things, test to make sure they're safe, build the next cycle, make it safe. Those things have to be done linearly. It's like that old joke of, you know, nine women can't have a baby in one month. I mean, it, 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 it sounds like a chauvinistic joke. That's just a statement of biological fact. It's similarly in engineering. You can't, you can't engineer a system 
safely by building 10 of them simultaneously. You need to build one to show the design works, make the design modification. You might build a few, but then you build another couple or few and you do this linearly. It's a concatenation of, of learning and that, that'll take a decade, two decades, and we'll get there, have lots of nukes in the world. But I, I, would, I would remind everyone, you probably know this, so electricity is about 20% of the world's energy. So about 20% of the world's energy goes into making electricity. In the United States, it's a little over a third. So if, if you switched all our power plants from coal and gas and, you know, and oil, lots of oil still burned to make electricity, by the way, around the world, surprising to most people, and made them all nukes, uh, and your goal is to stop burning hydrocarbons. Okay. Uh, so you're going to, you know, you'll take away 10 or 15% of today's, today's use of hydrocarbons, which will mean, given the growth in the world's demand for hydrocarbons, it'll have no impact of any significance on the demand 20 years from now. Uh, so it's, but it doesn't make it not, not important. In fact, I would argue the inverse, it's critical. We, we have such astonishing demands for energy to fuel the world that we live in, that we really need to use the, uh, the phrase that President Obama used, he may have used it cynically, politically. I'd like to believe he didn't. The all of the above phrase for energy, in fact, is the only resilient energy solution uh, system uh, for countries and for, for the world. No, absolutely. Well, Mark, this has been great. And Ron's going to take you the rest of the way home. We are against our last break here. I want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes, previews to upcoming shows. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. <laughs> Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Mark Mills, the senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and the author of The Cloud Revolution. And Mark, I know we were talking about this on the break, uh, but I just want to get it on the show uh, George Gilder, we've had on four times, I believe. One of the times was about his book, Life After Google. 
And he laid out these 10 rules in the book, but one of them was replacing the cloud will be peer-to-peer architecture. And I just kind of wanted your take on that because it seems like it's the antithesis of your book, but you gave me a great answer during the break. Yeah, well, George is right. Peer-to-peer matters. And for people who don't know what that means is that you're distributing the computational functions. Um, and so if I have powerful computing, somebody else has, the network lets them work together. And that's what blockchain does. So you get security because it's a distributed, you get physical security because it's distributed. <clears throat> so my view is that both happen. Um, the, the cloud, that is the cloud, first of all. The, the cloud is what makes that possible. So the cloud in my definition is not that only all computation goes to, to, the, to a central data center, but rather the, the central data centers, because they are so economically efficient, keep expanding. And the utility functions that can be done remotely, there'll be even more of them in the future rather than fewer of them. I mean, AI would be a good, ex- a good example. Many, many of the tasks we want to perform to using uh, machine learning require such massive data sets that simply can't be performed locally. So you end up having to collect data locally and and upload it remotely, analyze it in the cloud. But there are many things that you don't need to do that way that you can do sufficient analytics on the edge and share computation with other other devices that are nearby. But they're they're shared on a cloud network. They're shared on a wired and wireless network, uh, which will dominate in the future, you know, it's hard to depends on the function. The analogy that I use and George is intimately familiar with is the, is the peach. You know, the networks are like peaches. They have a core that gets bigger as the peach gets bigger, but geometrically, as a matter of arithmetical ge- geometry, the surface gets bigger faster. That's the edge. That's the peer-to-peer. And that that's going to keep getting big faster because, again, the, the, what we all call Moore's Law, but just the increased computational power in ever smaller packages with ever smaller amounts of energy means much more can be done on the edge. That'll keep happening. Uh, yeah, you know, you pointed out that AI is the most data hungry and power intensive use of silicon. And Gail Pooley just put out a <laughs> substack where he said, yeah, it's, uh, it's doubling every several months, it's, 295% a year. <laughs> it's got up the amount of compute resources, which is also a way of measuring energy has gone up 300,000 fold in six years to do machine learning and AI. It, it, it makes Moore's law look like a snail. Uh, I got to ask you about this, Mark. You wrote a, a great summary article uh, in the Foundation for Economic Education, 41 Inconvenient Truths on the New Energy Economy back in 2019. Yeah. And, you, and you quoted Bill Gates, we need to bring math to the problem. And then boy, you brought math, physics, and a dose of, I would say, hard economic reality. Hydrocarbons supply over 80% of the world's energy. A small 2% decline that solar and wind have provided cost us over $2 trillion. I mean, this whole zero emissions thing, this is utopia, isn't it? Well, it's it, I, first of all, I wouldn't use the word utopia because that presumes that that's a good, that's a good outcome. <laughs> Well, it means nowhere (laughs) is what I meant by it. But yes, (laughs) agreed. You you mean, you mean other words like a chimera or you mean uh, it's a dream or as I've used the invective, it's a delusion. Right, Uh, right. No, it is. Uh, Look, first of all, uh, and I'll quote Bill Gates again, because he he and I, obviously, I don't know him, never met him. He was kind to say very good things about the book that I wrote with Peter Mm -hmm. Huber, The Bottomless Wealth. Uh, We put his... His uh, encomium on the cover of the 
paperback because he, he said it was, at that time, one of the best books he read on explaining energy, which is what the book was about, explaining explaining things rather than rather than telling people what to do. I want to you know, explain things. I have opinions on what should, should happen. Look, the zero emissions can't, the people mean eliminating use of hydrocarbons can't have carbon dioxide emissions. It's not going to happen. It isn't happening. We don't have the technology for it. Bill Gates has said many times, many places, and I'll quote the exact phrase he uses, the technologies don't exist, end quote, to achieve uh, no, no use of hydrocarbons. The only debate we're having is the magnitude of hydrocarbon use 10, 20 years from now, not whether or not it's zero. That's what the real debate's about. And the the, the collateral debate is how much does it cost to reduce each increment. And since I wrote my 41 truths, what we now know is that from year 2000 to now, the world, the Western world has spent at least $5 trillion directly, directly and indirectly, I think the number is closer than $10 trillion to try to avoid using hydrocarbons. That's what we spent. It's a lot of money. So we've reduced the share of the world's energy that hydrocarbons provide in those 20 years from 84% to 80, sorry, from 86% to 84%. So the two percentage point to be clear, means that we're at 84% of the world's energy is hydrocarbons. But that's the percentage that shrunk two percentage points on a pie that got bigger. The absolute consumption of hydrocarbons in the two decades since we spent trillions of dollars to avoid them, the absolute consumption has increased by quantity of energy equal to adding six Saudi Arabia's worth of oil supply. Now, it's not all oil, it's oil, gas, and coal, but the point is the absolute increase in consumption of hydrocarbons has continued, even as we have spent trillions to avoid it. Now, spending trillions to supplement it, I'm all in. But to avoid it and still see it go up, you have to ask yourself what the we you know what the British call the knockoff effects, what we call you know, could call an e- economics or rebound effects. What you think, or what I would think more simply is are the are the wealth destroying effects of that. Right. You, you know, another stat you point out is if we had 100 times growth in e- electric vehicles to 400 million, we would displace 5% of global oil demand. Yeah, that's right. Well, in fact, if we get the goal of all EVs, you can even do that. But all if you assume all of them get re- replaced, uh, you, just, you just have to know what share of world oil is used for Cars, like light sure. vehicles, and and you know it's it's a big number. It's like twenty five percent of world oil is used for light cars, um, but that's not all. That's not all the world's oil. That still means that you have to produce the other seventy five percent, and that's because a hundred million barrel a day uh, a world, and you have to account for growth in the world between now and then, and then you also have to account for the fact that I've been writing a lot about lately and seems to be gaining some traction. Uh, you emit oil. To build the EVs, or use oil rather, emit carbon dioxide. The mining sector, forget manufacturing batteries, just the mining sector, uses 40% of the industrial energy in the world. And fully th- two thirds of that energy is oil and gas. Yeah. Uh, these giant trucks that weigh, you know, kilotons <laughs> and move kilotons of stuff. Uh, and cost, you know, megabucks each in the last 40 years, burn oil. Right, right. Well, Mark, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on. Stay with us during a live close. Ed, what do we have coming up next week? Next week, we're going to talk about intellectual property with Stefan Kinsella. Looking forward to it. See you in 167 hours. 
This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern. That's noon Pacific. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us on the web at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.